Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, how can Ireland stop an Italy-style spread of coronavirus? Everything is moving incredibly quickly with COVID-19. So for your information before you start listening, we recorded this at about 2.30pm on Wednesday afternoon on the 11th of March. One of the biggest questions of the past 48 hours is how Ireland can avoid becoming Italy, which has been the second worst hit country in the world with COVID-19. To delve into what happened there and what's happened so far here and Ireland's response to it, I'm joined by the Journal.ie's senior reporter, Michelle Hennessy, who has been appointed as our full-time reporter on the outbreak, and Anthony Staines, DCU professor in the School of Nursing, Psychotherapy and Community Health. He His work focuses on public health and health systems. And I'm just going to give you a further rundown of his expertise, because right now it's really important to hear from and listen to the correct people. Dr. Staines started out as a neonatal paediatrician before moving into public health and epidemiology. After an MSc in epidemiology at the London School and a PhD in it, he began working. He moved back to Dublin in 1997 to UCD and set about developing research activity in public health, including work on injuries, infectious diseases and cancer. He now works with DCU and has worked on child public health, health information systems and the costs, the social costs of illnesses. Thank you both so much for coming. Um, there's obviously a lot to get through. So I'll start with you, Michelle, and we'll go back as far as we can to when the first cases appeared in Italy. Who were they and what were they? If we talk about the official timeline of when they were reported and, and go in, in that line, there were two cases detected at the end of January in Rome. Um, these were two Chinese tourists. And when that happened, uh, these two people, they were isolated in a hospital and their contacts were traced. And uh, at that time, Italy became one of the first uh, countries to cut transport links with China. So uh, restricting flights in and out of China. Um, they declared a state of emergency. They introduced thermal scanners and temperature checks on international passengers. So Actually, at the beginning, at that stage, or what they thought was the beginning, um, it appeared that on a small scale, it had been quickly contained and the government there was, uh, or at least publicly, was confident um, that it had taken the appropriate measures. And in fact, restricting flights to and from China was probably more drastic than the WHO would have recommended at that stage, which was two confirmed cases. So then in February, uh, we moved to patient zero now, a 38-year-old, or patient one, I should say, a 38-year-old Italian man uh, in, in an area south of Milan tested positive. Yeah, because the first ones were in Rome, but actually what that's we've right. been hearing about is northern Italy. And that's what everyone's been talking about. And that's what a lot of the cases that have been imported into Ireland, that's where they've come from to people who've travelled to northern Italy, who became infected while they were there and who came back. And they've now tested positive for the virus here. So by the time this man was tested and the result came back confirming he had COVID-19, he had already unknowingly passed the virus on to a number of others. And this included his friend, some healthcare workers, his own wife, who's pregnant. And this man ha had felt unwell uh, about two weeks after the first cases in Rome. And he went to his doctor. He was given treatment for just a common flu. And a couple of days later, he felt worse and he was having respiratory problems. So he went to his local hospital. Now, because there wasn't any suspicion from healthcare workers at that time, or any strong suspicion anyway, of COVID-19, they didn't take any extra precautions around him. So he wasn't isolated. And it also took a while before they tested him as well for the virus. And he was in the hospital in contact with a number of people, in contact with other patients in the emergency department, in contact with healthcare workers, with nurses, with doctors 
structures and the virus was then passed on to others. So they think as many as 20 people who had contact with him were infected and, you know, he had no idea he had it. He was reportedly asymptomatic for weeks before he even started to feel sick and he was passing it on to people, you know, during that time. And when he was sick then, obviously he passed it on even further. That's right. Where are we at at time of recording? How many cases are we looking at in Italy and, and how many deaths? So at the time we're recording, uh, we have 10,149 confirmed cases in Italy, in, in the whole country, and there have been 631 deaths. And what are they doing now? Like, obviously, it's got to a point where it's it, it has spread rapidly um, and they've had to take drastic measures. What are the measures that they've taken? So if we look at before the, the recent lockdown that people are going to be familiar with that just happened this week, um, obviously I already mentioned they had cut the transport links with China right after the first two cases. And then things started to escalate when, when they were seeing clusters in northern Italy. So when the infections in the north began to spread, initially 11 uh, municipalities linked to this cluster of cases were shut down. This is in the province of Lombardy and Veneto. Schools were closed, all the public events were cancelled, religious services were cancelled, uh, regional train services into these areas were all suspended and then there were extra police officers who were assigned to patrol quarantined areas because there were actually penalties for people uh, who, who didn't follow the rules, basically. Major companies like IBM and Vodafone allowed their staff to work from home as a precaution. And then as it escalated further uh, on the 4th of March, the government imposed a shutdown of all schools and universities for two weeks. Then a few days later, they put a, a lockdown on uh, Lombardy and 14 other provinces. And that involved more than 16 million people. And then obviously on the 9th of March, the government extended the lockdown to the entire country, which affects 60 million people. So now the entire country of Italy is on lockdown. When we say lockdown, Anthony, what do we mean? Like, what's the public health definition of a lockdown? It varies depending on exactly what you're doing. But in, in Italy, I've spoken with one of my Italian colleagues two mornings ago and she works from home. The... There are no restaurants or pubs open in her area after six o'clock at night. There are no mass events of any kind. Tr public transport is very limited. And as far as possible, people who are not doing essential work, and essential work includes things like food delivery, uh, uh, mun sorry, municipal services like electricity, water and so on, uh, health care and social care services, they're all essential services. So they're all running. But almost everything else has stopped. It's obviously not a decision taken lightly. No, it's it's very, very expensive. It's extremely disruptive. And I'm really glad that I'm not in a position where I have to take that sort of decision. But the Italian government have decided that the risks, the risk to Italy of continuing as they were, were too high. It's clear that for a number of reasons, the coronavirus has escaped from control in Italy. And they, they have just over 10,000 cases now. But without drastic action, they could have 100,000 cases. There's obviously, it's multifactored, but is there any kind of headline reasons why it has gone out of control? It was clearly circulating in the community for a long time before anyone detected it. That's, that really is the most likely explanation. People were infected. The incubation period of this disease is something like four days to 10 days, and the average is about five days. And once you get symptoms, most people feel too unwell 
to keep spreading it, but not everybody. Some some people have very trivial symptoms that you'd hardly notice and they seem to be infectious. We don't know how infectious people are before they develop symptoms, possibly for a day or so they might be, but not as infectious as they will be when they're symptomatic. And the, the good thing about this virus is it's spread by fairly extensive contact. So most of the Chinese cases have been in household contacts. But there's enough spread outside the household that you can get a sustained epidemic going in a population. And the only way to stop that is by changing the behaviour of that population quite drastically. One of the, just to go back quickly to one of the things that has been going around that some people are saying that there is a mild, that some of the symptoms are mild, whereas other people are saying what what doctors mean by mild is actually going to make the average person very sick. So when you say mild, do you actually mean mild in a, as a lay person would mean or what do you mean when you say mild symptoms? There, there are people who have hardly any symptoms, but most people are significantly ill but are able to mind themselves at home and the the treatment they require is fluids, something like paracetamol um, and a bit of minding. But there's there's a significant minority who need the full resources of the hospital, maybe 20% of cases that we identify need the full resources of the hospital and maybe 7 to 10% need an intensive care or something very close to it. Anthony, the title of this podcast is How Can Ireland Stop an Italy-Style Spread of Coronavirus? But when you hear what happened in Italy, there was someone unknowingly going around the north of Italy with COVID-19. Because of all the awareness now and because um, we're at a different stage, is that possible that someone is doing that here in Ireland? It's probably happening right now. And there, there are indications there, are, there is community spread. There are people who have symptoms which most likely are not COVID. They're most likely some other viral pneumonia because there are loads of different viral pneumonias. But because they haven't travelled abroad or been in contact with an identified case, they're finding it very difficult to get tested. So actually, we don't know. And one of the things the South Koreans did that helped them bring their epidemic under control was very large scale testing. They tested hundreds of thousands of people. And we're not there yet, Michelle, in terms of our testing, where are we? No, we're not. And I imagine it probably has something to do with the capacity at the moment. I mean, there's only one place that the test can be done, and that's at the UCD lab. Um, At the moment, I was asking a question at one of the briefings this week, you know, how long is it taking for the test to come back now? Because we obviously have tested, I think it's 1,700 people, they said yesterday, yesterday. as of Monday was the number of people or the number of tests they've done. Uh, That's obviously a huge strain on resources, but they said they're still coming back within at least 48 hours, 24 to 48 hours. In some cases, they're coming back within 12 hours. Uh, You would imagine that if we started doing large scale testing like that, unless there's a, a, a massive increase in resources, it's going to delay the results coming back. And I suppose the concern there or what experts have been saying to me is that if we keep the resources as they are. If we have that, just that one lab with the same resources it has and we start testing 10,000 people, are we going to start missing cases that we otherwise would have caught early if we mm. kept things the way they were now? So, it, I mean, one of the things that the WHO has been saying all along is that it's about governments building up the resources they have, even in China, where things have started to scale down with the virus. 
with the outbreak, they're seeing fewer new numbers every day. The government is actually still building on its resources and preparing for a possible other outbreak that'll happen further down the line. So I think the major question is, why aren't we doing an Italy-style lockdown right now? Like, why are we still yeah. work, sitting in this podcast? And studio? we, as reporters, have been asking that question for, for the last two weeks now. Uh, one of the answers that we got in a briefing just this week from the Chief Medical Officer, Dr. Tony Holohan, his answer was that it's important not to start doing things too early. So as regards doing a total lockdown, you know, making the schools close down, those kinds of uh, extreme measures that you might take. He said people will get fatigued by them here and the government is dependent on compliance. So he said, say we, we take the decision to shut down all of the schools and then parents maybe have to stay home or companies decide everyone has to work from home. There's no public transport, shops closed down, restaurants closed down. He said people will eventually become annoyed by that. And if we do it too early, it might have to go on for a much longer time than it otherwise would have. The worry, he said, is that people will just stop going along with government advice. People have been quite good so far with following the government advice. And a lot of people think that, you know, the restrictions haven't been severe enough. People are actually quite keen to be quarantined at the moment they in Ireland. People are sort of dying to be able to, to just stay indoors and stay away from people and work from home. Uh but that's the reason that they're saying that they're not doing it. And in fact, yesterday he was saying, Dr. Holohan, that this blanket visitor restriction across all nursing homes is actually not necessary at the moment and wasn't recommended by health authorities. He said that there may be come a time when the government is saying, you know, we should restrict visitors to nursing homes. We should restrict all visitors to all hospitals. That time might come. But he said, if we do it too early, you're leaving older people in nursing homes in a position where the length of time that they have to be away from their families, the length of time that they're experiencing social isolation is, is going to be increased unnecessarily. And that can have impacts on their well-being as well and their relationships with their families. Anthony, what science, public health medicine, what formula goes into making these decisions? It all seems to be about timing. There's an inevitability that things will shut down a bit more than they are right now. When do the decisions, how do we come to those decisions? As the number of cases goes up, the, the choices become clearer. And Tony is right. I mean, I have the, I have the height of regard for Tony Holland. We're lucky to have him on the premises. But it, timing for this does matter. I think we, we are probably at a point that we need to take more aggressive action now. And in fact, many organisations are. The, the universities, many of them have decided that they're going to do all lecturing, which is where you, you have maybe 100 people, 200 people, 300 people in a room for an hour. So all lecturing is going to be delivered online. But they're going to continue doing practicals because you, you can't do a practical in your kitchen. It just doesn't work. I, I think increasingly hospitals are going to restrict visitors. The nursing home sector has already made its decision and I don't see it going back on that. Simon Harris last night was talking about school closures, not in terms of if, but when. The hospitals are ramping up their own capability to do tests. So the government's putting a lot of effort into expanding capacity for testing. And that will, will take a little while to happen but it's happening as, as I speak. So we, we will be able to do a lot more tests in the, in the very near future. 
probably people listening will say, okay, if there's an inevitability that things are closing, granted they've just heard Michelle give the examples from Tony Hulhan about why you wouldn't close earlier, surely the number that you're talking about that it will go higher, could you not stop that from getting higher if you do close things earlier? No, because the cases that we see we saw yesterday were all infected five or six days ago at, at the, the most that's the most likely time because if you're infected today you won't turn up as a case for bet- somewhere between four and ten days so we're looking and we're, we're, we're always a week or so behind so we don't know what the numbers are now but we're fairly confident that they've, they're higher than they were yesterday so what we're we're trying to do is to to run a balance between what will be a very damaging set of closures. And one of the points you mentioned, um, what happens if we close public transport? How do people in the food business get to work? Because actually you have to keep the shops open. The the stuff you have to continue to provide and you have to do whatever it takes to make sure the people providing that stuff can get to wherever it is they need to do it. And not all of those people have cars. So you can't just blanket shut stuff. You really have to think through very carefully, very meticulously what you're going to close, what's essential and how you're going to keep the essential stuff going in a very sort of concrete way. You know, here and here and here, we're going to do this and this and this. And that planning takes time and has to, it has to be done right because if we, we, can't, we won't run out of food but we can't run the risk of doing it we, the water supply will continue but we can't put it at risk how do we get the water purifying chemicals from the warehouses of the distributors to the water plants who is going to drive them because they're not going to deliver themselves all these and there's a whole tree of questions behind every single one of these services and, and- they have to be addressed and how do you get society to operate or in your um, academic academic work, like how do you get societies to operate when it obviously then becomes two tiered? There's some people who can stay at home mm. and isolate themselves because their jobs will allow it, their mm. family circumstances will allow it. Mm. And then there's other people in society who do need to be out every day and, and in contact with people or, um, you know, doing essential work. I, I think it comes down to communication. You know, being very clear with everyone about what is actually happening. What is, what is the plan? Wh- whom, do you reg- whom do you regard as essential? And it's also about trusting people. You know, pe- people are not stupid. Most people have a very clear idea of whether they can work from home or not. Having the, the sick pay kicking in early will make a big difference to a lot of people. Having the financial support for businesses will make a big difference to a lot of people. So if you're a taxi driver and you're you're not feeling great, you're under less financial pressure just to do another day's work than you might otherwise be. But that communication that, that and that's why that's what politicians are for, among other things. That's what political leadership is about. So it's getting the leadership out there and saying, well, this is what we're doing in health. This is what we're doing in the defence forces. This is what we're doing in, in the guards. This is what we're doing in agriculture, education, social welfare. Being very explicit about it so we all know what's going on. Because you've seen the, ru- the rumours 
on th- on Facebook and other social media are just bizarre. And WhatsApp. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to do another explainer um, and another few articles about some debunking some of yeah. those WhatsApp messages people have been getting. Um, so keep an, an ear out for that. Um, just want to see from other countries who are a little bit further ahead than us. Um, Michelle, you mentioned China earlier, but is there anything like granted that you know, we're a very different culture and very different uh, political state. But is there anything that we can learn from China or what do they do there that could be replicated? Well, there was actually an interesting interview with uh, Dr. Bruce Aylward from the WHO and he he led a, a fact-finding trip in China. He did an interview with NPR and he said in relation to, you know, these total lockdowns of countries that other countries might be taking the wrong lesson from China attributing the success to these restrictions on daily life in a number of cities. And he pointed out that, you know, it wasn't the entire country that was shut down. Essentially, it was just a number of cities where there were big clusters. Um, He said, you know, in the vast majority of places where they didn't have these very severe restrictions, they went back to the fundamentals of public health. And this included ensuring that there was enough testing capacity, which we spoke about earlier, so that they could quickly identify the cases, isolating those infected patients, tracing anyone who had contact with them. That's something that we've been doing here with our confirmed cases. And when necessary, placing those contacts in quarantine facilities, especially uh, built in some cases, quarantine facilities, or sometimes they were using gyms or community centres that they had Uh, sort of makeshift facilities so they wouldn't get infected by the sick person or spread the disease any further. And also in places where there were uh, clusters of cases, authorities prohibited mass gatherings, which, you know, we've already seen here as well with um, St. Patrick's Day parades being cancelled. Individually, is there anything we can learn from other countries? I I think that you can learn a great deal. I I think it is about changing how we behave. It is about the very simple stuff, washing your hands, using tissues, staying away from people to the extent that you can, given your, you know, the other requirements of your life. And that, that changes the risk. All of that changes the risk of transmission very much in our favour. To put it in context, the 1918-1919 flu, which was the worst pandemic in kind of remotely recent history in this country, uh, 20,000 people died. Now, that was a disaster. I'm not, not minimising it in the slightest. But that happened in a country on, engaged in war, recovering from another war, with uh, the public health function badly damaged. We're, if we, That would be an absolute outer worst case scenario for this. So we can bring this under control. Being terrified of what might happen is not going to help. The, the job of the health service is to sit down and plan for worst cases in case they do happen. But we, we have done a lot of planning. We have a lot of facilities. We, we've made arrangements. Even in the hospitals, the trolley count is substantially down, which suggests that we're, sh- we're shifting the way we use hospitals and we will shift further. So there's a lot of stuff that is done at government level and health service level, which will carry on. But at an individual level, it is very much about continuing to be sensible. And being sensible, does that still mean going out about your daily life in the same way? Like if you have plans to go to a restaurant this evening or if you've plans to go to a concert that hasn't been cancelled yet. Like where does the responsibility lie with you individually and and or the organisers of such events? I I think you have to make a judgment. Would I go to a concert uh, 
no, I wouldn't. I think the risk is too high. Would I go out for a meal in a restaurant? I might, if it wasn't too big or too busy. And the, the, the truth is the restaurant trade has declined substantially in the last few days. So people are making their own judgments and people are acting in those judgments. So it is about, this is going to damage the country. It is about minimizing the damage. It's about minimizing the number of cases we get. And it's also, ideally, it's about stopping this virus circulating. We could get into a situation where this virus comes around every year, as, as does influenza. Now, flu is really hard to get rid of for a variety of reasons. This virus is easier to get rid of than flu. The, the first big coronavirus outbreak was SARS. And there hasn't been a human case of SARS since 2003. The, other, the next one was the, the MERS, which is prevalent in areas where they have camels and it's still going they haven't been able to stop it so we we could stop this and if we could stop it that would be a huge benefit to everybody so that it doesn't come back next year yeah the strains of this are we still talking about one strain like with influenza there's so many different strains is this still one strain or is there more there, there's work on on ver, on different strains it's not clear to me and i'm not i'm not the right person to ask how important those different strains are. But find a friendly virologist and ask them. One of the things that people are frightened about with this is that we will have this period of restriction and we will go through, we will do all the damage that that will do to our economy and we will then ease off the restrictions and the disease will come galloping back. And there is a school of thought that says we'd be better off if this came galloping back in the summer rather than next winter. The Chinese are very, very concerned about re-imported cases right now because they, they could have other large outbreaks. And that's why they've built up and are continuing to build up testing capacity, isolating capacity and treating capacity. We need to build up uh, contact tracing capacity. We have 60 people doing contact tracing, which is grand when we're having single digit cases a day but once we start getting 10 or 15 cases a day that's it we, we can't contact trace more than that effectively because it's very time consuming so we need to train more people to do that we're training we're we're expanding testing we are in a, in a sense clearing the decks in the hospital sector we're starting to plan in other sectors what about homeless services what do you do if there's an outbreak in a home you, in a homeless hostel? You come in some morning and Mary or Jack is is unable to get out of their bed because they have a roaring temperature and a nasty cough. What do you do? What can be done? They, it, it, they, they have to be treated properly and it has to be carefully planned for because it's not just, I mean, you, you transfer them to an acute hospital. That's what you do. But you then got the staff members in the hostel, the other people using the hostel, all of whom are potentially exposed, depending on exactly what Mary did last night. You know, were, were they sitting down drinking a cup of coffee? Uh, were, they, were they chatting about mutual friends or, or what happened? So all of that needs to be thought through because the, these vulnerable groups are, are a real challenge to the system to care for, but it has to be done. 
In terms of um, just looking at other countries again, what can we learn? I've been fascinated by Taiwan. Can you tell listeners a little bit about what happened there, how they've managed to contain it to the to the extent they have? Ta- Taiwan picked up that there was a serious problem in December of last year. So that there was really the first country to take serious action. Uh, they picked it up at a time when the Chinese government was flatly denying there was any problem. And they stopped people traveling. They, there is screening at the airports in Taiwan, but the consensus amongst the experts is that airport screening is for the birds. It makes people feel better, but you miss the majority of cases. Um, but they, they stopped people traveling from China and anyone from any Taiwanese who came back from China were put into isolation. And there isn't that much travel, fortunately for, for them, and like us, they're an island and they have a very, very well organized public health system. So they did the, the wash of the hands, use the tissues, aggressive contact tracing, isolation of cases. And, you know, hopefully they, they have managed to to escape with, largely unscathed. Singapore did something similar. South Korea, they did mass testing. I think they've tested more people in South Korea than anywhere else on Earth. And they've used that to guide their public health measures. It also demonstrates some behavioural elements of, of public health. You mm. do try to have to regulate people's behaviours. Like, you know, if you if you went to a... I was in a pub last week and there was definitely people not washing their hands. Yeah. <laughs> we were all talking to each other saying, did everyone wash their hands when you were in that room? And, and particularly the men's, they, they hadn't. Yeah. Um, so you're talking about trying to shift people's behaviours. How able for kind of, I don't, draconian is the wrong word, but how able for extreme measures are an Irish population if we do ask them to mm. to completely shut down for the next two to three weeks? I would say it is much longer than the next two to three weeks. You're thinking not about weeks, you're thinking about months. So don't underestimate the scale of what's being being asked. Um, I, I think... If it's explained carefully and clearly and if the right plans and measures are put in place, the Irish population will change what they do. And in fact, they're doing it now. And it's going to be it's going to be intensely frustrating. It's going to be very boring. It's going to be very hard. There's going to be a major run on Netflix. Um, and I'm not being paid for the advertising. <laughs> But we aren't either, unfortunately. The, that's the reality. Pe- people are going to be spending a lot more time at home. And not just people who are at risk of being exposed, but everyone will be spending more time at home and less time out. Organisations like the GAA, I mean, my, my thought would be that they need to cancel all the large matches without any exceptions. But what do you do about a club match which might have 100 people at it? What do you do about training? And my, it's, it, you, you, you need to sit down and work this through. But my, my initial thought would be you probably keep going because people are going to need some kind of outlets. But you've got to do risk assessment for out for every every activity. And being out on a field is one thing. Being in the clubhouse afterwards, drinking a few pints is is very different. And they might need to not do that. Yeah, it was actually something we talked about earlier. Like 
dressing rooms versus yeah. fields versus even Cheltenham going ahead. It's different to maybe other mass events because it's yeah. day longs, there's tents and it, yeah. it seems unusual that it's going ahead. Yeah, I, th- I think Cheltenham, I, I really hope that we don't have caused a bitterly regret Cheltenham going ahead. But it's certainly, it's, the British government has run a very substantial risk letting it happen. Uh, and I, I hope they get away with it because a fair number of people from Cheltenham come back to Ireland. Um, Michelle, not to end on that kind of <laughs> grim note, uh, <laughs> while not going to towards full on predictions, just in the next few days, what are we expecting to hear from Tony Holohan, from Simon Harris and, and other government officials? Right. So for us as reporters, it's, it's quite hard to predict <clears throat> what's going to happen from day to day. And at the moment, the way that things are working is if somebody has been in contact with a confirmed case or who has uh, been to an affected area, an area where there's a spread of the virus and they're feeling symptoms, they're being advised to contact their GP by phone. It's important to stress by phone. Don't go to your GP surgery. Don't go to the emergency department. And ultimately, it's going to be up to public health doctors to decide whether they'll be tested. And once a case is confirmed, what they do then is contact tracing, trying to establish who's been in contact with them and testing them. And people are being asked to self-isolate if they have been in contact with people who are confirmed cases. So that's why we've seen some cases of entire schools being closed. If, for example, there's a student or maybe even a teacher who has been a confirmed case, the entire school may be asked to self-isolate or we may see an entire company uh, being asked to self-isolate or to work from home. That's where we are at the moment. We're not seeing any of that en masse, but it, it is possible, as, as Anthony was saying, that we're soon going to see all of the schools being asked to close. We've already seen visitor restrictions at the nursing homes will be moved to visitor restrictions in all of the hospitals. That might be something that comes next. We've also already seen some companies who are asking workers to trial working at home to see their capabilities. Those preparations are being made. So it's possible that those companies, if it works out for them to have the majority of their staff working from home, that might be the way they go for for a few weeks. Like I said, it's it's quite difficult to predict how it's going, but I think we can say for certain that there are going to be more severe restrictions coming down the line. I'm just going to put my editor's hat on for a second before we finish. Um, there is obviously a huge of amount of interest in COVID-19 and there's a huge amount of information being disseminated through news platforms like the journal.e. But also there's a lot going around Facebook, Twitter um, and particularly WhatsApp. Um, a lot of these messages are, some of them are well-intentioned, um, but a lot of them include dodgy claims, fake news and, and just bad content. Um it is our responsibility as news reporters and editors um, to debunk this bad science and false news. And we want to do that. If you see anything going around or something you have um, has been shared with you, if you would send it through to us at tips at the journal.ie, that's T-I-P-S at the journal.ie, that would be really, really helpful. And we'll be able to tell you if the information is trustworthy or not. Um, and I think it's also, um, Anthony was talking there about personal responsibility. It is all of our responsibilities to not share some of this bad information. So if you see something going around, think before you press forward um, on it. Where is it coming from? Do you know where it's coming from? And have you checked it out? So we can all know more about this, be more informed and help keep it under control. Um, Thank you, Anthony, and thank you, Michelle, for coming in today to The Explainer. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you again to Michelle and Anthony for their time and work. If you enjoyed this chat and learned something, we have loads more for you. Check out our back catalogue where you'll find other shows on the coronavirus and much more. 
This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by executive producer Christine Bowen, producer Aoife Barry, and assistant producer and tech operator Nikki Ryan. If you are enjoying the episodes, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And more importantly, share with a friend who you think will enjoy them. Thank you and catch you next time.